Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everyone, it's James Crepia, Ducks Beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live, bringing you the latest edition of the Ducks Confidential podcast. Lots to go over ahead of this week's game between Oregon and Stanford. The season opener finally feels a little bit like fall, finally feels like football season as the Pac-12 gets underway this Saturday. Uh, Oregon and Stanford in prime time, a 4.30 game Pacific on ABC. National television audience up against uh, Clemson and Notre Dame from a television viewing standpoint for much of the country, but uh, a game that certainly has a lot of consequence for Oregon, certainly could play a major role in the national landscape uh, in terms of whether or not the Ducks are going to be not just a Pac-12 North contender, Pac-12 contender as a whole, but potentially sneak in to the college football playoff, uh, whether they, uh, certainly they need to win the Pac-12 championship in order to do that, um, but if they do, it's, it's going to require probably going undefeated uh, and certainly starting off the season with an emphatic statement win. They have that opportunity on Saturday. But before we get to playoffs and all those things weeks from now, got to start with the here and now. So let's start with how the week began on Monday, as it is uh, commonly referred to in most all college football circles as depth chart day on the opening Monday of the first game week. We know this year it's the complete uh, antithesis of that and that it's the opening Monday for the Pac-12, but it's not the opening Monday for anybody else. But it was depth chart day for the Pac-12, uh, the Ducks releasing theirs as well. And the takeaways were really what you heard from across the league. And this was actually a good message for most every single team that you look at the depth chart for, and it's no major surprises. And that's what you want to hear. You don't want to hear that there's all these surprises and un, you know unexpected uh, listings of players or somebody you didn't even know was in the conversation or something. No, you want things to be, have a degree of certainty. And even amid this highly unusual year with the pandemic and everything else going on, obviously, including at Oregon, we're not attending practice and getting a chance to look at things. But one, folks are being forthright, which they typically are. Uh, in terms of personnel and rotations and things like that, for the most part, not giving the house away or anything like that. But, you know, when we've been asking about certain player rotations and things, most of that has been very, very upfront uh, from players and coaches all the way through camp. So that's first and foremost, which led to the fact that there were not very many surprises. And additionally, for as many position battles as there were for Oregon, to be honest, not that many of them were 
there was a battle, but it was a, a battle where it was pretty lean, you know, a heavy lean towards one direction. Um, and some of the battles, quite honestly, were lower on the depth chart, and they weren't for starting jobs necessarily. So how things filled out, if uh, obviously for those of you who have subscribed to our Oregonian College Insider, and you've seen, uh, obviously, our projected depth charts throughout fall camp, especially the last edition on Monday morning before the formal release uh, later that morning, we were fairly spot on, um, almost across the board, uh, especially at the starting positions. It was, I believe, almost, almost, if not a hundred percent correct in the starting roles. I think, I think it was a hundred percent correct uh, in the starting roles. So, really, no major surprises, no significant uh, surprises with the depth chart. Overall, the major takeaway being, of course, that they did not formally name a starting quarterback between Tyler Shuck and Anthony Brown. All indications have been and continue to be that Shuck will get the nod for the start on Saturday. Can't say that Anthony Brown is not going to play. Obviously, there is no disincentive to playing a player anymore. One, even in the non-2020 year that we're in, the four-game redshirt rule would certainly allow the flexibility to do so. But two, this year, everybody's got a free year of eligibility. So redshirting won't be a thing this year. In terms of the very concept, it's unnecessary. Everybody's eligibility is preserved. There is no need to redshirt. There's no need to worry about four games, two games, one game, none of that. Uh, So that's out the window. So you can't say that they can't both play. They certainly could both play. Uh, Frankly, I've been a a little bit surprised across the country that you haven't seen more teams try to utilize some additional quarterbacks just in personnel packages, if for nothing else than the fact that, yeah, you can throw a curveball at somebody. Um, But, you know, neither here nor there. Bottom line, that was one of the major takeaways on Oregon's depth chart. As far as all the various ors, which is always something for those who read depth charts, and look at it on a week-to-week basis throughout the season, and fans who are certainly very passionate about it, I know, uh, usually take a pretty good look at, at these things. Don't read too much into them, number one. Uh, first and foremost, just I mean, it's, it's not something necessarily to, to read a lot into, unless there is something like a, a true quarterback battle that is going down to the wire, or a by-committee approach or running back or something. But short of an injury that arises where something changes in the middle of a season and all of a sudden some a, a backup is listed as a co-starter because they just don't know. Of the 20 ORs that are listed, which an OR designates a co-starter, co-backup, depending on what line on the depth chart it is, co-third string, whichever it is, three of them are a punt return. So let's put that aside for in and of itself. They might have to figure that out over the course of several games. Nothing wrong with that. We knew that Javon Holland was moving on, and you know no team does a ton of live special teams work in the preseason. Uh, sometimes they try to work it out in the spring. Obviously, we know Oregon didn't get a chance to do that. But in terms of fall camp, yeah, they had some work with it, and Travis Dye, Micah Pittman, Chris Hudson, Josh Delgado, all in that conversation, but they don't have to determine before the season who their primary punt returner is. Look back to last year, and Michael Wright didn't emerge as the kickoff return lead guy until midway through the season. And Oregon started off very rough in kickoff returns. So they can sort things out after several games. Frankly, 
you really hope that the punt returner gets ample opportunities because your defense is forcing so many punts that you can sort it out over a few games. So three of the 20 oars are there, first and foremost. So let's kind of put those aside in and of itself. That leaves 17. Well, 13 of the 17 are on offense. All right, well, six of those 13 are on the offensive line. Is that really indicative of just a complete unknown and and something that's truly calamitous or something? No, not at all. Not at all. For one, a couple of them are at the tackle spots where both George Moore and Stephen Jones are listed at either side. They're capable of playing either side. They have played either side in their careers, both in practice and in the case of Stephen Jones in games. So that in and of itself also not a big surprise. Uh, furthermore, again, listing guys as or start, this guy as a starter or that guy, or in the case of the right tackle spot, three times over. Some of it is legitimate personnel rotations that they were going through in practice. Any preseason, especially when you have a full starting unit overhaul, which is what Oregon's going through, as we know, they were sorting out and going to explore a ton of different contingencies in a normal season. They were going to do that. Remember, this is still a group who played six offensive linemen last year on a weekly basis. And in four games, because Stephen Jones redshirted, they played seven. So you see a depth chart that has oars at all five of the offensive line spots. Oh, and by the way, Malasala, Amavai Laloop also played games last year, and Alex Forsyth got some reps last year. Hey. They regularly played six. They significantly played seven. This is not unusual for this team. So this idea that, oh, wow, you know, things look undetermined. No, it isn't. It's totally determined. They're determined to walk into the season opener with seven to nine guys who they feel abundantly confident in, and Mario Cristobal had said as much. That's been the stance all along. That's been consistent. But in terms of who the five starters are going to be, it doesn't have to be a lock five. It could be a flex into a six. And that's what they did before anyway. So in and of itself, that's not a big surprise. It's all the names we know about, whether it's Moore, Jones, Alex Forsyth, TJ Bass, Malasala, Ryan Walk, who's earned a scholarship, Sam Putasi. These are the guys that we all knew about and all heard about. And then, of course, yeah, some of the freshmen in there as well, lower down on the depth chart, absolutely. But as a whole... All the names that are at the top of it in these uh, co-starter designations are guys who we knew were the most experienced guys coming back. And again, this is a unit as a whole, even last year, that showed a willingness and ability to play six and seven and at times even eight or nine different offensive linemen without any hesitation. So no major surprises there to me on offense at all. Uh, The only slight modification uh, or adjustment would be at uh, lower down in the receiver positions where uh, we had heard that Chris Hudson was working at both the slot, mainly the slot, and he was listed on paper only behind Micah Pittman at the Z position. However, he's still working in the slot. It doesn't mean that he's not there. We've heard Micah was on the outside primarily, but he too is also capable of playing in the slot. It's where he played last season behind Jalen Red. So, some of it is just on-paper designations, and some of it is also just the fact that, yeah, the receiving position, they, they can move guys around. So not a lot to 
overreact to and read too much into on offense. On defense, even even less, uh, which, again, is that much more of a good sign as a whole. Not going to go through every which position because, again, everybody is basically exactly where we expected. Um, I believe the defensive depth chart, I was almost 100% top to bottom. So there was really almost no surprise whatsoever, nowhere, not the second line, not the third line. Um, kicking game appears to be solidified with Camden Lewis and Tom Snee. There was a little bit of question there uh, this offseason, just to the point of, hey, these are scholarship returning players. Obviously, Cam closed last season better than he started, uh, but Tom was coming off not punting at all last year. And in 2018, was more of a short-range guy behind Blake Maimon. Well, is he ready to be out there and kick all season long, albeit we're talking about six to nine games, but be that as it may, um, kick in, you know, not have to worry about only uh, short fields uh, to to kick the you know for, for for as much as possible in the full range of the field. That appears to be sorted out and shorted uh, and shored up. So as a whole, again, not a lot to certainly not overreact to. Really, not much to even react to in general as far as the depth chart was concerned, other than to play down for those who have apparently reacted uh, rather strongly one way or another to the roster as a whole which is uh, obviously very, very talented, more talented now than it has been, at least on paper in terms of the recruiting classes as the years have gone on, as the Cristobal era enters another year. This roster is very talented, and we knew that based on the recruiting rankings. But when you consider that this is actually – the youngest roster in college football. Think about that for a moment. For as much talent as Oregon has returning, for as many significant players as it has back at certain positions, this is a very young roster to an extreme, actually. So among one of the lead notes... Uh, in Oregon's game notes, and credit to uh, Oregon's sports information department for coming up with this. So there's 110 players on the roster as a whole. Of course, we know there's 85 scholarship, but 110 on the full roster, including the walk-ons. 81 are underclassmen. That includes uh, freshmen, redshirt freshmen, sophomores. That's 74%, nearly 74% of the team's roster, 73.6% of the team's roster is in its first two years in the program. Or in the sophomore case, I suppose there could be some redshirt sophomores, so all right, let's call it three years, but they're underclassmen as a whole. That is the highest percentage in the entire bowl subdivision. And they're one of three Power 5 programs to land the top recruiting class in their conference each of the last two years. So when you factor in... (laughs) Not only that it's unbelievably young, but that that youth is obviously very, very highly touted. And we know all about it with some of those freshmen that we all know about, or in the case of a Kayvon Thibodeau, a sophomore that we know lots about and is the leading returning pass rusher not only on this team, but in the conference and one of the top in the country. This is a team that is not just built to compete and continue to win in 2020 in a short season. This is a team that is going to be unbelievably well-situated for 2021 and 2022. But we can, we've can we certainly got all the time in the world 
to talk about that in the months ahead. We won't go too far down the road, but in terms of just looking at the depth chart, seeing certain trends, that was a note that certainly stood out. Those are some major takeaways from the depth chart. Now ahead to this weekend's game with Stanford. One of the major news items that came out from Stanford on Tuesday was that two of its three best defenders are unlikely to play in Saturday's game, that being outside linebacker Gabe Reed and cornerback Caillou Kelly. Now I say two of the top three because you could have a little bit of an argument as to where their defensive end ranks in that hierarchy. So rather than getting into a splitting of hairs and absolutely declaring that their lock top two defenders uh, are out, rather than getting into a, a literally a war of semantics in terms of where Thomas Booker ranks among Stanford's best returning defenders, and he is a very good player uh, who is back, just saying two of the top three for certain. I mean, there's no argument to be had there. Reed was their most disruptive returning defender. He had 43 tackles last season. Nine for loss was the most returning on the team. That's why I say he's the most disruptive. His two sacks are behind only Booker, uh, I believe. Yeah, Booker had four. Uh, Reed had two last year. And Stanford's top two guys, uh, Casey Tuhill and Javon Swan, are both gone. So that's why I say Reed is the most disruptive returning defender. He is unlikely to play and basically was ruled out. And on top of that, it's not only that he's out, who is replacing him? A former walk-on named Thunder Keck, who had three tackles last season on special teams mostly, and he was recently placed on scholarship. No doubt he's deserving. However, you are talking about replacing one of the most disruptive defenders on the team with a former walk-on who has three career tackles. That is obviously a significant downgrade at that position for Stanford, an area that no doubt I would look for Oregon to try and exploit, to try and attack a player in his first career start, to try and attack a player who, from a talent standpoint, should be overmatched by whatever Oregon is throwing at him in terms of running backs out of the backfield, in terms of pulling guards, in terms of pulling tackles. Those are the areas where Oregon can certainly have an advantage on the edge where before Reed, you could argue, could have presented a significant challenge to experienced players in a Stephen Jones or George Moore, but Moore who hasn't played a ton despite his age, or Jones who played four games last year, started some games back in 2018 when Panay Sewell was out, but as a whole, still a young and developing player, very good, but young and developing. Now they actually have the advantage over a former walk-on in Thunder Keck, who, like I say, is replacing a Gabe Reed, who there's simply uh, there's, there's no easy way for Stanford to replace him. And you consider that how much he was able to do last year and how much he was able to benefit from Casey Tuhill being on the team. Now they're both gone. And now Oregon can focus that much more on limiting Booker, the other defender I mentioned at defensive end, who is absolutely going to go up against Jones and Moore, now they can almost, almost, I, I can't speak for the coaching staff because I, I certainly know nothing about the game plan, um, but they can almost dedicate themselves as an offensive line to double-teaming 
Stanford's best defensive end with no real concern of significant blowback. They can focus on containing him and double-teaming him and chip-blocking him and doing things to prevent him from making an impact on the game because Stanford was on a per-play basis last season. There were only three teams who had seven tackles for loss against Oregon last season. Stanford was one of them. The difference from them and the other teams is they did it in the fewest plays by a significant margin. Only 54 offensive plays last year for Oregon against Stanford in a 21-6 win in Palo Alto. Remember that. That was still that was Stanford at the epitome of being Stanford. They were playing ball control. They were playing possession style. They were bleeding the clock. It was all about time of possession. They were not there to try and get in a shootout at all. Now, that said, Oregon's defense held Stanford without a touchdown, one of only two Pac-12 teams to do that in the last decade. That gets overlooked at times because the 21-6 score wasn't necessarily the most entertaining of game for fans. But offensively, Justin Herbert made some terrific throws in that game. Obviously, there was also some success, um, particularly through the air, to a Jake Breland in that game. However, Stanford did create some disruption in the backfield on seven plays out of 54 plays. That is a really high clip for a team that didn't allow much by way of disruption in the backfield. Well, now you say, all right, well, how can they fix it? What changed for both teams? Well, Oregon loses its entire offensive line. Ordinarily, you'd say that'd be a major concern, except for the fact that Stanford lost some of its best defenders, all from the front seven that created that disruption. And by the way, a couple on the back end, we'll get to that, but obviously on the front end, where the disruption came from for the most part, Tuhill had two sacks. He's no longer there. And as I say, Reed, who could have been one of the more disruptive guys in this game, he's not there. And plenty of other guys from the inside linebacker position. So bottom line is, This Stanford team, just as much as the Oregon offensive line is changing, the Stanford front seven is changing compared to a year ago in a big, big way. And I think even with all this personnel turnover on both sides and what is going to be played in the box and in the trenches on Saturday, I think the advantage actually lies for Oregon there. From an experience standpoint, um, from an overall depth and talent standpoint, I think Oregon has an advantage there. The other player who's out, being Caillou Kelly at cornerback, uh, who played as a freshman last year, had 35 tackles, one of which was a sack, had an interception, had five pass breakups. That was the most returning on the roster after Paulson Adebo opted out and declared for the draft. So consider that Adebo, who for most everybody's money was the number one returning cornerback in the Pac-12 Um, certainly an All-American conversation candidate when he opted out and Walker Little on the offensive side, but we'll get to him. When Adebo opted out, that put a big, big dent in the Stanford secondary. Then Kelly becomes the number one returning corner as a sophomore. Now they're down their top two corners compared to where they would have been earlier this offseason. So now it's the question of, who does Stanford even march out there uh, to fill in the place of Kyle Kelly? And David Shaw did not have an answer for that on Tuesday, not because he was being coy, but because he said it's undetermined and he's not one to spring surprises. So he plans to announce that later in the week, but that 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 is undetermined. So they're probably going to play either a, so- a true sophomore or potentially a freshman. Either way, 
a player who has little to no game experience, is going to be going up against John Johnson III and or Micah Pittman primarily during Saturday's game. So you want to talk about advantages for Oregon's offense, despite the fact that its offensive line is replacing five starters, despite the fact that Justin Herbert's no longer here, and Tyler Shuck or Anthony, and or Anthony Brown are going to be playing. Hey, first and foremost, you've got a back-to-back 1,000-yard rusher in the backfield who's probably the best running back in the Pac-12 and one of the top five or six in the country in C.J. Verdell. You have the number three returning receiver in the conference and Johnny Johnson the third, who answered a bunch of doubts and questions about uh, consistency and uh, drops from 2018 by having a very big year last year. Now you put him out there and Micah Pittman moving from the inside to the outside primarily and adding in a young freshman, Chris Hudson, who this coaching staff and the players, the defenders mainly, have been raving about his speed. And you consider that Stanford will now have guys starting at the cornerback position who have little to no game experience. Basically, it is hard to make an argument, even if you are the most ardent of Stanford fans. It is hard to make an argument here for where Stanford is going to have a decided advantage in the Oregon offense versus Stanford defense matchup. It's not an easy argument to make at almost any position in almost any individual matchup. As I say, and I like their defensive end Booker, but when you consider that now Oregon can do a lot to try to contain him, And like I say, double team him and chip block him and do things to prevent him from creating any kind of disruption. And then you factor in, like I say, the just complete lack of experience at the cornerback position primarily, to be clear. They do have some experience at safety. I don't want to act like there's there's nobody there. There certainly is. But Stanford has a decided lack of experience on the defensive side of the ball entering this game. And that is an area where I do think Oregon is going to have the potential to really, really exploit some things especially with this new offense, uh, when you have an offensive coordinator change, a quarterback change, there was already things were kind of playing in to, I'm going to say necessarily to their advantage, but that because, I mean, you could have a change and it may not go well. Uh, I mean, you, can't, you can't not leave that door open. But there was things, there were circumstances that were going to make this an advantageous situation for Oregon in the first place. Now I think it gets that much further accentuated. Um, by the personnel departures, by injuries, by some of these other circumstances that now present themselves on that side of the ball. And out of the other side, for the Stanford offense against the Oregon defense, well, Davis Mills, Oregon didn't play him last year. They played K.J. Costello, and Costello hurt his thumb. Uh, If memory serves me correctly, he actually broke his thumb uh, in that game um, when his uh, hand hit against the player's helmet on a throw. So that was part of of why Oregon uh, was so successful against Stanford that day defensively. Part, not all. Um, Their running back changes as well. Cameron Scarlett is no longer there. The one significant difference um, in terms of returning personnel that works in Stanford's favor in a big way, just as Oregon returns a ton from its receiving core and loses its top tight end, same thing goes for Stanford. Stanford returns a bunch from its receiving core but loses its top tight end. And Colby Parkinson, who Oregon did an incredible job. Javon Holland did a remarkable job completely taking Colby Parkinson out of that game last year. 
he was to say a non-factor. That's that's literally non-factor. Zero catches, uh, including one uh, early touchdown attempt that absolutely was there, but they couldn't get it. So a terrific job from a year ago. Well, they don't have to worry about that top target, which was the a number one part of the game plan defensively. And second, they change a quarterback. This is the one area that you could actually make a legitimate argument that Stanford may have made an upgrade compared to KJ Costello and the game from a year ago. Not only because Costello hurt his hand um, and was then far less effective, and they sacked him five times <laughs> as well, but because Mills has more by way of mobility, uh, he was more accurate than Costello was last year. Uh, obviously, Costello did not do great from a touchdown interception ratio in his five games last year. Mills didn't blow anybody away in that regard. He had 11 touchdowns to five picks. Uh, but but his completion percentage is pretty good. He is mobile. I wouldn't call him a true, a true dual threat in that sense. But as a whole, a pretty effective passer. And again, somebody who can uh, extend plays, get outside the pocket, scramble. These are things that ordinarily you don't necessarily associate with Stanford quarterbacks. That's for sure. Again, I don't want to make him to me a, a true dual threat. He is not. He is not. But he can move. There is a difference. So that is a change compared to a year ago. But in terms of an area where Stanford certainly has not necessarily an advantage, it will present an interesting matchup, though, will be the Stanford receiving core. Because in the six games that we know about, and I know fans can rush to get ahead to plan for Week 7 and a Pac-12 championship game with either USC or Arizona State, presumptively. But that is, we will have all the time in the world to discuss that potential matchup between now and then. It's about Saturday right now. Stanford has, in the six games that Oregon is absolutely knows it is on paper to play, Stanford has the best returning receiving core of the lot. They have perhaps even including Oregon's receiving core, the most well-rounded and best receiving core in the Pac-12 North. Got to call it what it is. Uh, and and having said that, as good as it is, talented as it is, and they are, having said that, I'm not sure that any of them are, are guys who necessarily blow you away. They're just all real good. I don't know how many of them are great, but they're good. Michael Wilson had 56 catches for 672 and five touchdowns last year. Simi Fahoku had 24 for 566 and six. Then a Connor Weddington only has one touchdown, but still had 50 catches for 500 yards. Osiris St. Brown, talented as well. Again, didn't have a receiving touchdown, but 27 catches for 263. And this was a team that obviously struggled mightily last year that went 4-8 that played two different quarterbacks, but they have depth at the receiving position. Those are four guys, and that's taking out a Colby Parkinson. And that's taking out a Cameron Scarlett, who had 240 yards receiving out of the backfield. So this is a team that has four legitimate receivers at the top end of their depth chart who are all capable. Uh, Wilson is one of the better returning receivers in the league. Again, are any of them going to necessarily blow you away with their statistics? No, not really, but that's not really what Stanford's there for. They're not to wow you with their statistics all the time. They don't have, uh, certainly no McCaffrey, that's to say the least, but they don't have 
McCaffrey or Bryce Love right now. That's not how this team is built right now. But they can still absolutely go toe-to-toe with a lot of teams in the North just by the fact that they play possession style and ball control style, and they're going to mask and cover up a lot of deficiencies with either lack of experience or the personnel losses in terms of talent or injuries or opt-outs or you name it that happen in the offseason. When you shorten the game, nobody is necessarily going to run away from you. Necessarily. Necessarily. And that brings us to lastly, as we wrap up this week's edition uh, of the podcast, the head of Saturday's game. We'll do one after the game as well. Uh, and then obviously set up to next week and looking ahead to next week's game at Washington State. There are so many areas where, as I say, Oregon has an obvious advantage entering this game uh, from, I mean, you name it. Uh, they, they really do. They have a lot of advantages on paper. Oregon is favored in this game. They should be favored in this game. They were favored in this game a year ago. And despite the personnel losses that both teams had, I think it still makes all the sense in the world for Oregon to be a two-score favorite in this game. Line opened at 11.5. It's gotten down to 10, 10.5 for the most part of the course of the week. Um, make your own decisions if that's something you care about. I do think that Oregon is the decidedly better team in this game. Obviously, do they have questions to answer to it too? Yeah. We haven't seen this offensive line play in live action in a game yet. Nobody has. So we can't act like there's no questions to answer there. There absolutely are. Uh, we haven't seen either quarterback play in this conference as a starter on a consistent basis against a, a legitimate defense. So there are questions to answer. But as I laid out already, the areas where they have a decided advantage, the areas where Stanford appeared to have some real talent and areas where they might be able to not necessarily exploit, but again, kind of use to their advantage, have a threatening player at a certain position, aren't the case. For one reason or another, they aren't the case. So with that, all that said, I do think Oregon wins. Uh, I haven't picked my final score just yet, uh, but I do think Oregon wins. Uh, I do think they win by multiple possessions. And I think because of this short season that you could see for a lot of reasons, uh, I think there is going to be all the incentive in the world to not take it to and, and put the screws to anybody necessarily, but to not hold anything back. Sometimes there are games where you say, well, the game is already in hand. Don't put more on tape. You worry about things down the road. No, no. This is a team who has to make a statement on national television and show the country that they belong in the conversation, that they, be that they are not to be forgotten about just because the Pac-12 is getting started later than any other Power 5 conference, later than any other conference, period, as the MAC gets started earlier in the week. They have got to go out and make an emphatic statement. And they have the ability to do it. They have the talent to do it. They have the coaching to do it. The only way they are going to be able to do that is if they are able to break Stanford from its ball control possession style. That is easier said than done. We saw that last year. It is far easier said than done. It is very difficult to accomplish. But the way you break a ball control team from playing that style is by getting up 
three possessions or more as fast as possible. Because the faster they cannot be within two scores. If within two, they can basically lie to themselves all the way to the finish. All the way to the finish. Because all they need to say is, even if you're down 14 with less than a minute to go, but you got the ball, if you can manage to get in the end zone, it's an onside kick, and we can give ourselves one shot at a Hail Mary to tie this thing. That's it. I'm not telling you that that's a recipe for winning. I'm telling you that they won't break from their style when that is still out there. But if you make it three scores, they can't approach the game that way the rest of the way. The faster you can get a ball control possession style team down, down bunches early. That is the key. Can Oregon get up 17 or more points in a hurry. I don't, I'm not sure it's going to uh, be a, a concern by the end of the game. My question is, is can they get up 17 plus? Maybe by halftime, certainly by the end of the third quarter. If you can do that, there's a recipe two ways. One is it becomes a feeding frenzy for your defense because now an offense that is not built to play catch up is all of a sudden forced out of its comfort zone and mistakes can happen when they're not used to playing that way. Conversely, that's high risk, high reward. On one hand, you're being more aggressive to absolutely put an end to things. On the other hand, if it pays off for the ball control style team, if they actually break through and get closer, now they're back to playing the way they want to again. And they can basically put the onus on you again so that's the that is to me how this game hinges on saturday can to me oregon has the decided advantage oregon's going to win the game to me in, in every way imaginable i can't make a objective argument for why stanford is going to win this game other than historically stanford is very very well coached they're always physical they're always good in the line of scrimmage what we knew that that's generally speaking the case, but they also went four and eight last year and they've lost a lot of talent that was on that team from last year. So we know that this is not the Stanford team of two, three, four, five years ago. You can't ignore that. So if you can't make an argument for why Stanford is going to be absolutely in the thick of things to the end, and look, I'm not telling you they can't be. I'm saying I can't make a concerted case for why they will be. If that is the case, how does Oregon not just win, but make an emphatic statement, they get up and they get up in bunches in a hurry. That to me is what is going to be the entire deciding factor in how this game is viewed nationally after Saturday. If Oregon squeaks out of 10 or 13 or heck, even if it's 17, but it's 17 with a late touchdown kind of win, it'll be viewed as a solid win, but a win that Oregon was supposed to get and okay. So be it. But if Oregon goes out there in its first game with a new quarterback, with a fully new offensive line, with a new offensive coordinator, having had only four spring practices and at every which other thing, and goes out there and just absolutely puts on a showcase performance and embarrasses somehow a team that gets a ton of respect nationally, 
especially, and they deserve it for the way they've been coached and the consistency that David Shaw and his program have shown during his tenure. Well, then, hey, now you've made a statement. If that is the goal, if that is the mission at the end beyond winning, if that is the truly big picture goal, and I'm not saying it is for the program, I'm talking more of a fan base perspective here and then the national conversation perspective. If that is something on the table, that's how I think it breaks down. But obviously, we'll see how it goes on Saturday. We will have another edition of the podcast after Saturday's game, um, especially since it's a later game. I'm not sure if I'm going to do it necessarily from the press box or if I'm going to do it when I get home uh, shortly thereafter. That still has to be uh, ironed out and decided, but do look to have it up Saturday evening, early Sunday morning uh, for folks to listen to. We'll have it after the game, and then obviously we'll have another one setting up for uh, the following week with Washington State. So we'll get to all that in the days ahead. But it is football season. It is back to the season. And the Pac-12 schedule opens up with three big games in the first week. USC and Arizona State at 9 a.m. on the national television game on Fox. That's a big one in and of itself. Could be the game that decides the entire South Division, and that opens up the entire season. Obviously, Oregon and Stanford, again, national television audience on ABC, up against Clemson and Notre Dame where uh, if you're an Oregon fan, you very much want Clemson to win that game and try and knock Notre Dame out of the conversation as fast as possible um, because if the, if the reverse happens, but then they get Trevor Lawrence back for an ACC title game and then beat Notre Dame and split the season series, now you could have two ACC teams in the playoff and, and your chances have just gone down enormously. So you want Clemson to win that game if you're a Ducks fan. And, of course, lastly, from the Pac-12, in the nightcap, uh, you have Washington and Cal in a game that has been competitive uh, for a couple of years now and a game that the winner could find themselves in the top 25 on Sunday, could make an early uh, certain planting of the flag, certainly, in terms of who is going to be the team most in the running for a at least second-place finish in the North Division, if not contend and push Oregon later on. And remember, Oregon ends the season against Cal and Washington in successive weeks in December. So those are going to be significant games down the stretch. The winner from that that game Saturday night will be significant one way or another. Loser is certainly not out of it, but the winner just becomes that much more significant. So that is the setup for Saturday's game, for the Saturday slate as a whole for the Pac-12 and the games that are the most relevant, particularly to the Ducks. We'll see how it goes, and we'll be in touch with you after Saturday's game. Till then, enjoy, and we'll talk to you again soon.